The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Hello everyone, welcome. So tonight is the uh, continuation of a series of talks on the Four Noble Truths, and I should say it's February 28th. Um, and I've been talking most recently about the Third Noble Truth, and tonight I'll start talking about the Fourth Noble Truth. And it's useful that uh, we keep reminding ourselves that the teachings that the Buddha offered and that we continue to use today, they're really meant to be pragmatic. So the idea isn't to somehow memorize these concepts, but to understand them or to apply them to help us illuminate the mind, like to see more clearly what our experience is. Again, not in terms of even grouping or analyzing the experience, but really the concepts are useful to move beyond our normal filters. You know, like I used tonight the concept of Dhamma in the instructions during the guided sit. And now we could have easily, maybe some of you did at times at least, spend our time sitting thinking about, uh, what is Dhamma? And the whole idea of a Buddhist concept uh, is a concept that turns the mind toward a direct or immediate experience with things as they are. So clearly we use thinking. I mean, we don't want to just somehow unplug the part of the mind that thinks, that wouldn't make, we wouldn't be very effective in the world. But what we're trying to do is cultivate a particular skill with our thinking. So we're cultivating thinking that turns the mind toward Dhamma, which we usually translate as the way things are. So that kind of thought is different than the kind of thought that leads towards more thought or proliferation. So some thoughts lead to more thoughts, thinking, that sort of train of associations. And some thoughts lead to the experience or a waking up to things as they are, waking up to Dhamma. And again, it doesn't matter what we wake up to. We can see breath as Dhamma, a sound as Dhamma, a thought or mood as Dhamma, everything Anything that can be known can be seen or known or understood to be Dhamma, the way it is. And I know it sounds a little bit like we're just sort of creating, you know, we use this word, a new foreign word for some of you at least, Dhamma, and then it's like, oh, there's something special or magical that we need to discover. But it's not so much something we discover, it's that in learning to turn our mind in this particular way, or to open in this particular way, we abandon something. We abandon our fixation on our concepts and thoughts, our identification with our thoughts. That's what's, that's what's profound about this. It's not what we see. It's not that Dhamma is so special. It's what's not there that's so special, or what's abandoned that's so special. And this last few minutes that I've been talking, it's really about the third and 
and Fourth Noble Truth. But I'll spend a few minutes just doing some review. So the Buddha, uh, after his deep insight, he wanted to formulate a way of talking about what happened to him, what understanding arose for him, in a way that would actually trigger that same sort of awakening or insight in other people. And he saw that the biggest problem was that we human beings are very much devoted to seeking pleasant experience and avoiding unpleasant experience. And in fact, our whole mind and life is really wrapped up around that activity of seeking pleasant experience and avoiding unpleasant experience. So the Buddha created a set of concepts. He calls them the Four Noble Truths. And as a set of concepts, the whole point of this set of concepts is to turn our basic approach to life from that seeking pleasant experience, avoiding unpleasant experiences, to an approach of using life to understand it. So the whole point, then, of being alive in any moment isn't to get a pleasant experience, like to adjust your body so it feels better, or to you know understand what Mark's saying to feel better, but it's it's about using the moment to understand how it is or what it is this moment, and uh, that's very different. It may not seem so different, but it's really different than having a sense I'm Mark who has a set of desires or preferences, and I'm out trying to fulfill those desires and preferences and avoid the things that I don't like. It's a very different way of being in a moment. And the, the point of the Four Noble Truths is to turn us in this direction. So the first thing to help us live a life of insight or understanding is to understand that in any given moment there is, a, there is or can be an experience of dissatisfaction or feeling it's like in most moments of our life, and probably we could say in every moment of our life, even though we don't recognize it, we could say that there is the experience of discontentment, meaning have we ever been fully and completely content in any moment of our life? Now, I'm sure that uh, most of us, all of us, have had some really nice moments. But even in those nice moments, even if we didn't recognize it, there's a sense of, uh, even if it's subconscious, a sense that it's not going to last. So even in the nice moments, like on a really nice vacation, there's some understanding that it's not going to last forever or that this will be over shortly. And that's, although very, maybe small, relatively small, a kind of discontentment in that moment. So the Buddha said that uh, to open to Dhamma, to let go of this seeking mind, the mind that is seeking a pleasant experience, we have to undermine the hook. And the hook is that we're going to find a pleasant experience that will somehow be satisfying in a long-term way. So. What he asks us to do is to notice as we live our life, both in our formal sitting practice, of course, but even more importantly as we're living our life, just to be attuned to dukkha. That's the Pali word for this experience of unsatisfactoriness, whether it's just a subtle kind of 
dis-ease in the heart or even a, a more profound, strong feeling of anxiety or uncertainty or vulnerability or irritation or boredom or loneliness, longing. We could generate probably hundreds of words that are different flavors of dukkha, things that are very strong and clear, and, and then all the very subtle forms of dukkha. Just a subtle restlessness can be a kind of dukkha, of uh, unsatisfactoriness. So the Buddha is here and understand that this experience is relevant because that's a very different approach. The way we're conditioned, the deep habit, is to just try to fix it. You know, when we notice it, dukkha, even before we're conscious of it, unconsciously, we try to fix it. And then, of course, if we see that we're really uncomfortable, then we consciously try to fix it. But the Buddha is saying, don't do that. Instead, recognize that this experience of unsatisfactoriness, uneasiness, is relevant and it's to be understood, not fixed. It's to be woken up to or received or open to. So it's a different approach. And then that deepening of awareness that allows us to open to dukkha then reveals the cause of dukkha. Like how in this moment does the feeling or experience of being unsettled, irritated, lonely, how does it arise here in this moment? Not like in terms of the circumstances where well, he left me or she left me, so therefore I'm lonely. But the feeling of loneliness right now is arising here. And so how does it arise? What are the conditions that make this arising possible, this experience of being burdened by loneliness? How is it that that arises? So this is the second noble truth, is this reflection on how it is that the heart suffers, feels burdened, feels weighed down or discontent. As we get clearer about that, just by seeing things as they are, just being interested, basically not being distracted. That's the whole point. Not being distracted by trying to fix this yucky feeling, but instead living this other kind of life, which is trying to understand it. And the way we understand it is by training the mind to be clear, to be open, to be receptive, non-judging, non-reacting. That's just our mindfulness practice. And then what I started to talk about last week is the experience of cessation. Now, this is an unusual experience, at least in a very clear, uh, clear, when it's very clear. But it probably has happened to all of us many, many times, but not necessarily happened to you in a way that you really understood what was happening. But the experience of cessation is when the mind is awake and clear and so there's some experience of dissatisfaction or discontentment in the moment, and the mind isn't reacting in its normal way, which is to try to fix it. So it's really steady and awake, and it's seeing that discontentment, and it's seeing how it arises, and it abandons that. It actually lets go of the not liking of the, whatever the pain is. So maybe there's some loneliness, and we see, you know, the heart feels burdened by the loneliness, but we see it isn't the loneliness 
It's really the not liking of the loneliness that sets something in motion that we call suffering. That activity of suffering is not just the loneliness, it's the not liking of it or the thinking that it shouldn't be this way or that I should fix it. It's that way of relating to the experience of loneliness that creates the experience of suffering. So that way of relating can be abandoned. And that's what we talked about the last couple of weeks. And that, uh, that abandoning of that is the experience of release. The heart in that moment, whether we're awake or not, experiences the release of having to fix loneliness, not liking loneliness. And the thing about loneliness without reactivity, and you can just imagine any common way your mind gets afflicted. So just substitute a different word for loneliness. So maybe your tendency of your mind is to get angry or to be bored in life or to always want something new or whatever it is. So what is that experience without identification, without attachment? What is that experience? Well, like any experience, it's movement. You know, all experience arises and passes, as it's often said in the Buddhist tradition. All things come and go. But what that means viscerally or directly in our experience is that there's movement. Loneliness is movement. Irritation is movement. Anger is movement. Craving is movement. It only turns into suffering when that movement gets some friction. The mind relates to it in a way that creates friction. And it's, the, it's through the process of attachment or identification that the mind turns any experience, can turn any experience into suffering. Because the mind, in some almost magical way, tries to resist something that can't be resisted, which is that things come and go. It tries to take a hold of something. So when we're lonely, we try to take a hold of the idea, you know, that it shouldn't be this way, or the idea that maybe I can do this and it will change. But we're, we're sort of not letting life just be what it is, but the mind is putting a squeeze on things. And we call that suffering, or stress, or feeling burdened, or feeling entangled. But it hurts. That's the bottom line. It hurts. So the experience of cessation is when, in any moment, the heart or mind isn't relating to experience in a way that puts a squeeze on it. And experience, any experience, whether it's a physical experience or a mental experience, if the mind isn't reacting to it, then the experience is actually experienced as it is. This is Dhamma, which is movement. It's flow or flux. It isn't a thing. It isn't a noun. It's a activity or a movement. And this is something that, of course, it doesn't do much. It does a little good, maybe, to understand what I'm saying as a concept. But what's really important is to get interested in what I'm saying so that right now and throughout your life, you start to look at experience in this way, like being interested uh, in all the different flavors of dukkha that arise throughout your day and then especially in your sitting practice when the mind tends to be a little bit more calm and clear and to then instead of taking our normal route which is try to, trying to fix the discomfort we take the Four Noble Truths route 
well, this is interesting. This should be understood, this discomfort. And then we look at the activity of being uncomfortable and how it arises. And we abandon the supporting cause for that experience of discomfort, that agitation. We abandon it. And then we notice a moment of release or cessation. And so the connection between the third noble truth, which is cessation is just the same word as nibbana or nirvana. right? So all enlightenment is, is a moment of seeing the mind, knowing the mind or realizing the mind that has no resistance, is putting up no resistance, no attachment, no identification to things as they are in that moment. That's it. So it's actually very simple. It's not so easy to do because we're so in the habit of wanting to be in the driver's seat with our life, wanting to control our experience one way or another, manage it, to pick and choose the parts of the moment we like and ignore, push away the parts of the moment we don't like, fix the parts that are bad, hold on to the parts that are good. So we're always in this position of managing and controlling. So it's not so easy to have that moment of cessation. And then even when it does arise, it's not so easy to be really clear, to really realize it with a real bright, clear mind, to really see it in wakefulness, not to sort of have it happen, but not to understand it because we're not really conscious when it happens. And the way the Third Noble Truth connects with the Fourth Noble Truth in the formulation the Buddha had is that when the mind or heart in any given moment is free of any resistance, so that's a moment of cessation or Nibbana, so in that moment of cessation, then, uh, then something, that moment of cessation is the cause for something else to happen. And it's the cause for insight into the fourth noble truth, which is the path. Like we might think we know what the spiritual path is about, but mostly, and I, I include myself in this, a lot of the time we're just sort of groping around in the dark. It's like we may have some sense like, don't go, don't, don't go in the direction of hatred. <laughs> don't go in the direction of craving. You know, we may know that much about the spiritual path, but we don't have like a clear idea of how to live this life in a way that leads to real peace, wisdom, compassion, happiness. But in a moment of cessation, the moment is free of self-centered fear and craving and it's free of any kind of resistance, right? That's the definition of cessation. It's the ceasing of any resistance in the mind. And so in that m moment, the mind is clear. And then in that clarity, an understanding arises, which is a deepening of understanding of how to live, like what the path is that helps to sustain this insight. Because those insights are really fleeting. They arise, there's a moment of cessation, but it isn't long before the habit of 
trying to control, like trying to keep that nice experience, arises. And of course, trying to keep a moment of cessation isn't cessation. That's a moment of craving. And then we're back diluted. But that moment before, there was a little bit of clarity about how to live. And in a way, what's revealed in that brief moment of clarity is what the Buddha describes as the Eightfold Path. Now, what really arises is just an intuitive, or you know the word grokking from, I think it's Stranger in a Strange Land. Some of you maybe read that like I did a long, long time ago. We kind of get how to live. Now, the Buddha just organized that insight into eight steps. But it wasn't like that, you know, you could organize it a, a number of different ways. He just organized it in a way that would be easy for people to remember. But it's an intuitive insight we all want to have over and over and over again. Every time we're consciously awake in a moment when the mind's not resisting in any way. And then we kind of get, ah, oh. It's sort of like we understand, oh, it's possible to be a happy human being, even with kids, <laughs> even with a job that, you know, where the, the boss has a lot of emotional problems or living in a country that has a lot of emotional problems or whatever kind of predicament we might find ourselves in, that, that we really get that the path of happiness is uh, available regardless of the, the circumstances. Because the path is really about how we relate to conditions. That's what re gets revealed in the insight into the Fourth Noble Truth. It isn't about the particular genetics I have. It isn't about the particular circumstances of my life. It's about how I relate, how I train the mind to relate to those conditions. That's what's revealed. And so, with that revelation, you know, a deepening of understanding of the path, then we go about living our life to whatever degree we can, more in accordance with what was revealed. So I want to talk about that a little bit tonight and uh, also next week. Maybe spend two more weeks on the Four Noble Truths, or this week and then one more week on the Fourth Noble Truth, uh, the Four Noble Truths. I'll just read a little bit from Arjun Sumedho here in his article on the Four Noble Truths. Because he's talking about this isn't something to think about or to figure out intellectually. It's something to be directly seen or experienced. And he goes on and says, don't think, that, don't think of it as something remote or beyond your ability. When we talk about Dhamma or truth, we say that it is here and now and something that we can see for ourselves. We can turn to it. We can incline toward the truth. We can pay attention to the way it is here and now, at this time and this place. That's mindfulness, being alert and bringing attention to the way it is. Through mindfulness, we investigate the sense of self, the sense of me and mine, my body, my feelings, my memories, my thoughts, my views, my opinions, my house, my car, and so on.
And then he goes on and he gives some instructions, like how, how do we do this? How do we move from our normal way of thinking to really see things more clearly? And he talks about the path of cessation as a path of perfection. So we're really, there's a certain thing we're perfecting, but it's a very specific thing we're perfecting. It's not about perfecting the personality. It's not even, it's not even about perfecting the concentration. It's really about perfecting an understanding or the capacity to see things as they are. So this is what he says here. The path to the cessation of suffering is the path of perfection. Perfection can be a rather daunting word because we feel very imperfect. As personalities, we wonder how we can dare to even entertain the possibility of being perfect. Human perfection is something no one ever talks about, right? It's definitely not cool. Yeah, I went to Kamigan the other night. Uh, I'm practicing to be a perfect human being. <laughs> it doesn't seem at all possible to think of perfection in regards to being human. But a fully enlightened being is a human being who has perfected life, someone who has learned everything there is to learn through the basic law. All that is subject to arising is subject to ceasing. An enlightened person does not need to know everything about everything. It is only necessary to know and fully understand this law. So what that means is as uh, all we have to do, the perfection we're seeking, is the capacity to see whatever's happening in the moment, including something as disturbing as being angry when we shouldn't be, you know? or being needy when, quote-unquote, we shouldn't be. So it just means seeing whatever's arising in the moment as it actually is, to see it not in terms of me or you, but to see things in terms of Dhamma, like it's just what it is. So it's that knowing without that knowing being confused by some story or interpretation. That's what it means. So there's a certain, I think it's appropriate to say, there's a certain training. We're going from ignorance. Ignorance means we're not able to see things or know things in that way, to non-ignorance. So you can call that a path of perfection, but it's definitely a path of training. From not seeing things clearly as they are, to seeing things just as they are. And so this particular way of seeing things we call wisdom. In Buddhist practice, this is called seeing things wisely or seeing things with wisdom, as opposed to when we see things from the point of view of our stories and interpretations, that's called ignorance or sort of conventional mind. And absolutely everything can be seen as Dhamma. Beautiful things can be seen as Dhamma, and it doesn't mean it's not beautiful. Like, think of something you think is beautiful. Maybe you have some object or possession that you just love, painting or a pair of slacks or car or partner, <laughs> but just something you adore. So what it, would it mean to see that as Dhamma? Well, it means ceasing, the ceasing, the dropping away of 
any confusion based on our interpretation. So it means just seeing it, receiving it as it is. You know, just shape and form, or sound, or smell. It's just the simplicity of what it is. And it's the mind free of friction, free of resistance, free of needing it to be one thing or another, so we're totally free of letting it be what it is in that moment, and then in letting it be what it is in the next moment. I was talking to somebody today on the phone, somebody new, interested in the introduction class, and she had done some reading and hadn't really started practicing, and was just wondering about this whole thing about non-attachment, you know, and she's a mother, has kids, and just to her, that was just like a, her mind just couldn't go there. You know, like, how could that be, non-attachment? And uh, what I told her is that it doesn't make sense. We, It's not something we can figure out, like, how would it make sense not to be attached to my partner, or not to be attached to the health of my body, or not to be attached to my kids? I don't have kids, but I would imagine that would be, you know, as, as a reflection, that would be the most challenging thing, or one of the most challenging things, right up there with our life. To not be attached, what does that mean? Well, we'll never figure it out like that. That's why I read that passage a few minutes ago, that it's really about using the direct experience, like seeing in any moment, in just whatever's arising in this moment, just experimenting. What does it mean to know this free of attachment. And it's not even that the mind has to somehow look at the attachment and then sort of get rid of it. Actually, what it is, it's more like we look right through the attachment to the experience. And the more we are able to open or receive the experience, the more the attachment goes away. So it's really just a matter of being mindful or being intimate over and over again with whatever's happening. If we're fully present or intimate, we're not attached. You can't be attached and fully present or mindful. Because attachment requires delusion. It means that there's the part of the mind is spinning with its interpretation and then reacting to its own spinning. And if we're practicing things, seeing clearly or being completely open and undefended, letting things be, then that can't happen. You can't have both happening at the same time. At the end of this chapter two in uh, Ajahn Sumedho's book, The Mind in the Way, Somebody asks him a question and he answers it. When you say the end of suffering, do you mean both mental and physical suffering? Which is a good question. So when we talk about cessation, so the experience of nibbana or freedom, and we say that the resistance in the mind has fallen away, and so there's the mind, the mind realizes the mind free of resistance. So what does that mean about my knee pain? <laughs> That's what the person's asking. Okay, I'm free, I'm enlightened, but what about my knee pain? Or what about the fact that I don't have a job? 
no, does it does it mean I have a job or does it mean my knee pain goes away? So this is what Ajahn Sumedho says. The suffering that ends is a suffering you create out of ignorance. When ignorance is gone and you see with right view, then the body still feels pleasure and pain, but you don't suffer from it. It's as it is. When you don't know this truth, then you create suffering. If the body is sick or in pain, then you're averse to it, and you feel frightened or angry or depressed about the sickness and the inconvenience of it all. That is the suffering we create. Then, because we tend to resist it, we create the conditions for more tension. If you meditate on pain, say, if you're sitting and your legs begin to ache, and you actually concentrate on the sensation itself and accept it for what it is, then you're not suffering from it. The suffering comes when you want to get rid of it, when you wish it wasn't there, when you want it to move. Then that's the suffering we produce. So consider in your own meditation, what is the conflict? What is the suffering? Is having leg pain really suffering or not? <clears throat> if you concentrate on the sensation, you realize that it's just what it is. But there is this averse reaction to it. And the more you don't want it, the more you suffer. I can't stand it. I've had enough. You get angry. So this is the real kicker with this practice. This is why it's, although it's simple, it's really challenging. Because <clears throat> to move from knowing dukkha to cessation, we have to uh, open to the present moment as if it were forever. It's, it can't be a strategy like I'll open to the pain of my knee or open to this emotional pain or the coolness in the room. I'll open to it, do it, be away. It doesn't work that way. It's actually a, 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 a radical turning of the mind from this first view that I talked about to what right view is. So right view, which is the first part of the fourth noble truth, is the path. Well, the first part of the path is wisdom, which includes right view and right intention, right thinking. And what is right view? Well, it's what we've been talking about, or I've been talking about tonight, which is seeing things as dhamma, seeing that things come and go and are not self. I mean, it, it's not personal. It's just the conditions being known. Just conditions being known. So that's a radical turning to get to that freedom. And it is real freedom. You know, Ajahn Sumedho says, well, there's pain and there's pleasure, but there's no one who suffers. But actually, that's what's relevant. It doesn't matter if the knee, if there's still this intense sensation arising. What matters is, is, is there anybody who's suffering because of that intensity? It doesn't mean we have a job. It doesn't mean we're not going to die. It doesn't mean that there isn't loss. But it means that the mind isn't creating resistance to life as it is. And there's real, that's, that is a, a very wholesome, healing, beautiful way of being. It's not like, you know, sort of a a grim, well, it's better, it's better to accept things than to resist things. That's not the, 
it's not what the Buddha's teaching, you know. It's like, well, it's even worse if you resist it, so you might as well accept that life is just bad and difficult, and then you die. <laughs> there, is, there is a profound kind of freedom that allows us to live lives of happiness and compassion and generosity. But it really requires a training. Learning to see Dhamma and learning to maintain this view of Dhamma, things as they are. In, in the next week, I'll talk more about the other parts of the path, but I'll just say a few more words about right view and then open it up for discussion. So when we have this glimpse of the path, the first part of the glimpse, I mean, it, it arises as a package, as I mentioned, like an intuitive knowing, but one of the things that's real clear is this view that conditions, whatever, mental, physical condition, they're never more than what they are. It's like we really get that tendency to make them more than they are. The conditions are never more. A thought is never more than a thought. A judgment is never more than just that judgment. See, our judgments with our conventional thinking, when we judge or when we react, it immediately gets put in a context, a story, about a guy called Mark, you know, who <clears throat> wants this and doesn't want that. And it's within that story that the whole burden of life exists. Maintaining right view, seeing things as Dhamma, there is no story. And without the story, there's no place, there's no way to construct the experience of suffering. And so when we have that right view, then right aspiration or intention just flows out of it. So instead of greed and aversion and delusion, we have non-greed, which is renunciation or generosity. That is the emotion that's left when, when there's right view. So instead of neediness and, and craving, there's generosity and simplicity and contentment. Instead of aversion and fear, there's kindness and compassion. And it's not like the kindness and compassion and generosity, there's somebody there generating it. It's literally what's left when the force of greed and the force of fear and aversion have no fuel. There's, there's nothing producing it. So this is the, this is the direction. This is what gets, you know, we kind of get this, like this effortless compassion or effortless generosity, just uh, kind of, uh, you know, I like the word emotion because it, it signifies a movement. And so as long as we're alive, our life is a movement. And so instead of a movement to get what we want, to get away from what we don't want, it's a movement of generosity and kindness. That's all that's left. So I'll leave it here so that we have some time to talk tonight, hear from one another, what you're noticing in your practice, any questions you have about the talk tonight, anything that wasn't clear. Jim? Is it helpful a lot of what you did, how you frame things as uh, thoughts arising. So it 
is it helpful to me, like, to think of it in terms of thoughts without a thinker? I mean, is it mm -hmm. the same thing you're saying, or is it turning it around? Because oftentimes when I'm practicing, I'll think a thought will come up, and then it seems to me that an emotion will attach to it. And then I'm, then I'm the observer. And then if, if it's really going well for me, it seems like the observer is gone and the flow is there. So mm -hmm. is it... Is that another way of looking at it, or is that just... Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, if that concept, non-self, or uh, anatta, as the, that's the Pali word, if that actually helps support that kind of seeing things as dhamma, instead of seeing things from a self-centered point of view, then absolutely, yeah, and that's central, it's a central teaching. So the Buddhists said there were three gateways to seeing things as dhamma instead of seeing things from our self-centered perspective. And the three gateways, the three doors into seeing things as they are is through the gate of impermanence, like just using, seeing the, the perception of flux or change, how everything's changing, by paying attention to that aspect of present moment experience, whether mental or physical, can bring us to Dhamma, the recognition of things as they are free of our mental interpretation. Or we can use the gateway of suffering. So seeing directly how unsatisfying, meaning that the experiences that are arising aren't, uh, aren't conducive to really quenching our thirst. You know, it's like we have a pleasant thought, but then it, we got to regenerate it because it keeps, you know, and it's like, it's true with pleasant experiences, they're unsatisfying, and of course, unpleasant experiences aren't satisfying even to begin with. And if we pay attention to the insubstantial or how experience is, is not, uh, uh, the satisfaction of any experience isn't lasting, that's called dukkha. If we pay attention to that, that takes us to the experience of seeing things as dhamma. And then the third is the non-self. So seeing the conditional or the impersonal quality of experience, the non-self quality of experience, that I, it's not me doing it, you know. Seeing that aspect of it, the conditional aspect, is another gateway to seeing Dhamma. And seeing Dhamma is the same as being free. If we see things in the, with a mind free of interpretation, free of reactivity, free of fear, that is Nibbana, that the cessation of that mental reactivity. And so there's the experience of freedom right then. Is that the way it really is, or is that a mental trick to get to a point of thoughts? What difference does it make? <laughs> I mean, the, the point is that what we know for sure is that this mind-heart suffers. We get bound up and it really hurts, and it seems like it's happening to those people around us, too, and that we care about it, and we're looking for relief. Relief that not only sort of temporary relief, but a, a kind of understanding that brings relief even as we begin the practice and then leads to a pervasive release. That's all we care about. And uh, wanting to understand can be used in practice, meaning as a phenomena to wake up to. Well, it's like this. Wanting to understand is like this. 
because generally we want to understand because the ego, the self-centered perspective, wants to take a hold of the truth. And the Buddha was very a very skillful spiritual teacher. He didn't often talk about things in the positive because he understood this aspect of our mind, minds, our conventional minds, that as an ego we want to be affiliated with the truth. You know, I'm a Buddhist, you know, and I'm I'm a Buddhist in the right tradition as opposed to the lesser traditions or the, you know. So we can get caught up in all kinds of things. Um, so generally it's, it's better just to stay really clear about the psychological, existential dilemma that we're in. There is something here that suffers and that wishes to be free of suffering and to really work with that um, because that's what's most relevant. Other thoughts? Becca. I have a comment about physical pain. Um, I kind of wish that I would have been practicing for many more years before I gave birth to my children because maybe it would have helped me to get through some of that pain. But um, I just, I have a hard time um, finding relief from suffering from physical and, you know, I mean, it, it sounds very simple to do what you said, um, to just to look at it and see it for what it is. And, but when you're in such intense pain for 24 hours, <laughs> trying to give birth to a child, it's like, it's like you can't help but to push it away or want try to push it away. And, and I could see myself pushing it away. So, I mean, I guess... That maybe is the benefit of having practiced for a few years before having my kids, is that, you know, I, I was able to see it, and I guess I don't know where I'm really going with this, but, um, you know, I guess at some point you have to know where, where your limits are, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And, an epidural. <laughs> what I'm doing, but you know, I, I stuck with it for a good 24 hours. <laughs> so, but I don't know. It's really, really tough. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine. <laughs> yeah. So that's how we start. You know, with that's the nice thing about the sitting ritual, the med- basic meditation ritual, is that generally, for most of us, some pain arises after a few minutes. And then, now this isn't pain that's going to kill us, or pain like delivering birth. It's sort of ordinary pain. And if we're wise about how we set up our sitting ritual, we don't say we're going to sit for two hours. You know, we start out with 20 minutes or 15 minutes, or, or who knows, maybe less, depending on how our body is. And but we push the edge so that toward the end of the sit, however long it is, you know, there will be some discomfort. And then that's relatively minor discomfort. Then we can practice with that. And we can really see, okay, here's the pain. Here's the impulse to react to the pain, to want to move the body or to want to judge my practice. And then we keep training the mind to turn toward the pain, to look at the pain, to open to the pain. So this is the basic training of going from our interpretation, which is saying this is pain and it's bad, that's our conventional way, self-centered way of seeing it, to 
this is pain and it's like this. So it's a turning toward intimacy or openness or being undefended with it. And we can learn profound lessons with relatively minor pain. And then what we learn from those times in life where the pain is really strong is that we have a lot more practice to do. <laughs> because we, what we do, what you can learn in those really intense times, um, there's a very deep lesson we can learn, which is uh, resisting the pain doesn't help. You know? I mean, if you can take drugs or get an epidural, then then you're not then you don't have to deal with the pain. But sometimes there isn't anything to do. And there's just that strong pain. And we learn one, that we've got a lot more practice to do, and two, that resisting it doesn't help. Now that doesn't mean we won't resist it. Just out of deep primitive habit, you know, we'll fight the pain. But we can see, we can observe there in that the haze of of being overwhelmed by pain we can observe that hating it and wanting it to be done with is itself more suffering. So there's the intensity of the pain, and then there's the mind that hates it or is overwhelmed by it. And both are very painful. Mm -hmm. That's my experience in the dentist's office. That when I was fighting that pain, I didn't think there was anything I could do with my mind. I just thought when I relaxed to the pain, it just reduced the amount of pain that I was feeling. But now I'm seeing and so this this is an experience that all of us can know and it is very profound now the problem is that we don't generalize it like we're not you can have that experience in the dentist. Probably a lot of us have learned exactly. I forget your name again. Emil, Emil uh, has had it at the dentist. But we don't. We're not really awake to the profundity of what we're seeing there. Because if we get that at the dentist, then <clears throat> the obvious question is, why not always? I mean, if this works now, then maybe opening to emotional discomfort, emotional pain, physical pain at all times is the appropriate path. That's what we miss. And that's really the advantage of, you know, having this package, this spiritual tradition that we are all kind of tapping into, is basically the tradition is grabbing us by the shoulders and saying, hey, there's a very pragmatic lesson that we all kind of know, and if you just wake up to it and, and sort of build your life around this basic principle, things will go a lot better for you. That's all. That's really, that's the path. It's, it's a taking something that is so obvious and commonsensical, which is resisting the way it is doesn't make any sense. Accepting the way it is makes a lot of sense. I mean, really, that's it. <laughs> Nobody, I don't think anybody disagrees with that, but our habit energy certainly does. You know, and so we need to illuminate that habit energy, and in seeing it over and over again, we can begin to transform it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. 
So, I mean, we can just think of, so let's say we're reading the news or watching the news tonight, and uh, somebody does something that strikes us as being really dangerous and stupid and possibly a cause for tremendous suffering. And there arises in our mind uh, a kind of repulsion and wanting to do something about it. And so the first is what we accept is that's how it is. First we accept when we're hearing it, you know, we accept that. And then we also accept our interpretation of what's being heard. And then we accept the impulse. So we're, we're just accepting what it is. And by fully accepting it, then we're not going to necessarily do the first impulse, and which is generally what we do when we're not being mindful. It's like something arises, but because we're not mindful, we're not just accepting that. It just leads to some reactive reaction. And then, but if we're mindful, then that reaction can come up, and we may end up doing, we may be, end up acting out that reactive pattern, or we may be able to say, that's not going to help anybody, and see if there's any other way to respond to that. So it actually gives us more degrees of freedom. And, and what we're really doing is just staying present, because being present with all the different impulses will naturally discern which are wholesome and unwholesome, like which might actually have some benefit for people and what ones probably are not going to have benefit. Hating the politicians, thinking that they're evil, means we're doing exactly what they're doing. You know, they're turning the world into good and bad, and then that's, and then we watch it on the news, and then we turn the world into good and bad. And when we wonder why things don't get any better, because we're all basically playing the same game, it's just some of us have more power playing the game, you know? And so the, 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 their decisions have, uh, you know, the implications are greater. The time for maybe one more comment, thought, if somebody has a thought. phrases to help us, these concepts like Jim suggested non-self, but even that, that phrase can be really conducive to maintaining it. I mean, how many times we could repeat that phrase during the day and it might reorient the mind just by saying something as simple as, well, this is how it is now. This is how it is. Can this be okay? So let's let go of the words, take a couple breaths together. Don't worry about holding on to the concepts that we talked about tonight. And we can generate a, our deepest, or remember our deepest aspiration. May this life, may this practice, support deep happiness and peace, freedom from suffering. For this 
mind, this heart, and for all beings without exception. May all beings be at ease.